Welcome back to Vital Voices, a podcast from the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation. I am Dr. Holly Humphrey, president of the Macy Foundation. On today's episode, we are going to address a particularly difficult but very important topic. How do we create spaces that are inclusive of the LGBTQ community in our health professions learning environment? To help us with this conversation, I am joined by Dr. Stephan Davis, who is director of the Masters of Health Administration program at the University of North Texas Health Science Center School of Public Health. Stephan is also the immediate past chair of the American College of Healthcare Executives Healthcare Leaders Community. Earlier this year, Stefan began a three-year term as regent at large for the American College of Healthcare Executives, a role that was created to promote diversity and inclusion in healthcare leadership. As always, this conversation is a follow-up to our webinar series discussing the Macy Conference recommendations on taking action on harmful bias and discrimination in clinical learning environments. If you haven't done so, I encourage you to watch the recording of the webinar featuring Stefan. You can find all of our webinars, the conference recommendations, and other resources on our website at MacyFoundation.org. And now, here is my conversation with Stefan. Stefan, thank you so much for being with us today. I'd like to begin by inviting you to set the scene for us, so to speak. What are some of the most pressing issues when it comes to LGBTQ plus inclusion in health professions learning environments? And as you identify those issues, if you could also maybe just speak to what progress do you think is being made? Yes, well, thank you so much for having me to talk about this important topic. I think that we've definitely made a lot of progress over my time in healthcare and healthcare leadership. Certainly, when I was beginning my healthcare journey at the turn of the century, we had a lot of examples of discrimination in the healthcare environment for LGBTQ plus patients. Saying things like same-sex partner discrimination, not being able to visit the one that they love within the hospital setting, or transgender patients being outright denied services, such was the case with Robert Eads. So So definitely we've made a lot of progress since those days, but we still have a long way to go, I think, with regard to health professions education, because in many institutions, we're not even asking questions about gender identity or sexual orientation when students are applying to our programs or when they're enrolled. Uh, So that's definitely a major issue. And we're also seeing still instances of violence against the LGBTQ community. So an example, recently we had Samuel Louise violently murdered in Spain simply because he was a gay man. We have these instances of violence against the LGBTQ plus community, and we need to ensure that as educators that we are creating learning environments that are inclusive and obviously where students can see themselves represented, but also where they feel safe and that they belong and that they can ultimately thrive in the healthcare workforce. Thank you for that. I especially appreciate you emphasizing the need for the learning environment to feel safe. Because I think that segues into my follow-up question about how we can really increase representation 
of LGBTQ plus students into our learning environments. And clearly they need to be able to feel safe in those environments, but ideally they would feel more than safe. They would feel really welcomed and valued. And so are you aware of some specific ways that we can increase representation through our admissions processes? Yeah, so one, we definitely need to be asking the questions, allowing people to self-identify as members of the gender and sexual minority community. We also should be identifying faculty who are willing to be open about their identities as we're having admissions conversations with students, webinars about our programs. If we have out faculty members who are willing to share their experiences and, and speak to the fact that the institution is an inclusive and welcoming environment, that will support students feeling comfortable in joining that institution as well as students who have already enrolled in that program. And we're going to have to do a lot of work. Obviously, we have representation of gay and lesbian medical students, nursing students, particularly when we look at white and gay or lesbian populations. But when we look at LGBTQ people of color and particularly trans individuals, I believe that we are going to have to be intentional about this. And we talked about this at the webinar a bit about this idea of intentionality and really looking at things like, do we reach out to high schools and to junior high schools and identify members of the LGBTQ population, students who self-identify as such, and speak to them about the opportunities to work in the health professions and whatever role they see themselves in, and really promoting this idea of pipeline development for target areas of the population where we do not have representation. I would love to see more Black trans physicians, more Black trans nurses, because we know that there's increasing levels of violence and victimization among that population. And the only way that we can eradicate health disparities is to really look at representation and increasing inclusivity for all segments of our population, both in terms of the workforce and healthcare leadership and for the patient population. Thank you for that. We have talked about the learning environment very broadly, and we've also talked about admissions as important tools and ways in which to create inclusivity. Let's turn our attention to the curriculum itself. And I would love to hear your suggestions about thoughtful representation as opposed to token acknowledgement in health professions education curriculum. Specifically, I think our audience would be interested to know some of the specific steps that you have taken in designing the curriculum for the MHA program that you run at the University of North Texas. And I think we are specifically interested to know not only what those steps are, but what might be able to be uh, duplicated at institutions across the country. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I think that your question is so important that we make that distinction about tokenism versus meaningful representation and meaningful integration into the curriculum. I remember from my nursing school education in undergrad, I had a professor who was teaching about cultural competence and actually was using various stereotypes about different populations to teach us what we should know entering the profession. So, for instance, I remember our textbook and the lecture reflecting that some Black patients may be fearful of the healthcare environment or have different practices related to their healthcare related to African traditions and voodoo. I remember sitting there as a Black student being very offended and also not understanding what they were referencing, given that my lived experience as a Black person uh, certainly didn't involve any traditions that would make me fearful of the healthcare environment related to voodoo or other traditions. Now, there were reasons to be fearful of the medical environment for other factors related to my race. Obviously, we have the Tuskegee Project. 
definitely there are lots of issues with educating based on stereotype. I remember the same professor also saying that many of our, our populations related to the LGBTQ community may be HIV positive as a result of being promiscuous. And that was the exact word that was used. So again, using language that is harmful rather than helpful in describing behaviors that may unfortunately lead to a sexually transmitted infection, but also painting a community with a broad brush and using stereotypes rather than really looking to the evidence and having a thoughtful, nuanced conversation. And again, really coming from a place of positive intent and looking to help the community rather than harming the community. So I think that those are really important factors for us to consider as educators. You know, at the University of North Texas, Cell Science Center, we have made inclusive leadership a cornerstone of our MHA program, not specifically with regard to LGBTQ identities, but really looking broadly at diversity. We actually did a climate survey where we allowed students to self-identify as members of the LGBTQ population that was at the university level. So we are making steps towards understanding what the perceptions are among members of our community. And then from a curriculum standpoint, definitely they see representation with me as an out gay man leading the program. But I also make sure that students know stories like the one I mentioned about Robert Eads or Tyra Hunter. The fact that Tyra was uh, denied effective medical care after being hit by a car when EMS realized that she was trans. Or the story of Robert Daniel and Bill Flanagan when they were denied visitation at University of Maryland Medical Center. You know, I share these stories with our students and really emphasize the fact that if we're going to be effective healthcare leaders, we need to be leading based on the principles of, of bioethics. And that's something that I think that we can universally understand, that patients should have the right to autonomy. Members of our workforce should have the opportunity to be autonomous and determine their own future. Also, we should be upholding the principle of non-maleficence or not doing harm. We should be upholding the principle of beneficence or doing good. And then obviously justice. So are we equitable in our approach? So if we're doing those four things, and obviously there are other ethical principles, but those are the four main ones that I emphasize in our MHA program. If we're doing those things, then it's likelier than not that we are going to err on the side of doing what's right and also benefiting the patient and not harming the patient. That is really rich background for, I think, a very important foundation from which we can build the more detailed and rigorous curricula that our health profession schools are developing. And it actually reminds me of when you and I first met at the Macy Foundation Conference. And one of the most critical moments in that conference was related to a conversation that had to do with racism and the LGBT community and the homophobia and transphobia among those who sometimes are the greatest champions in our institutions for racial and gender equity. And I know that you have had some experience in thinking about this, and I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about how educators and leaders in particular should address this kind of situation, which I think is not uncommon. Absolutely. I think that it's so important that we really emphasize allyship 
among the various minority communities and also broadly. I talk often about being a Black gay man, being a millennial in the context of academia. Those are underrepresented identities. But I'm also male, which means that I can lend my privilege as a cisgender man to support women and the advancement of women in the workplace and the advancement of trans individuals in the workplace. So I think that it's about lending our privilege, speaking up when we see that something is wrong and really trying to make healthcare, the entire healthcare experience for both patients and consumers, as well as members of the workforce, as inclusive as possible. Because again, that's the only way that we're going to eradicate health disparities. So I think that's a critical question. I do think that the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey, and Breonna Taylor really has made a lot of people within the LGBTQ community pause and reflect. And we're seeing much more of the rainbow flags that have black and brown added to them uh, to really indicate the LGBTQ LGBTQ community standing in solidarity with black and brown people, which is so important to me as a black member of the gender and sexual minority community. I also see on the the other side that we're seeing more flags and more T-shirts and symbols that say all black lives matter, indicating that, yes, that black trans person life matters just as much as a cisgender black person's life. So I think that we're starting to see evolution in all of these communities and really starting to speak more to the intersectionality of of identities and really emphasizing that we will not all thrive until really we have a conversation about every member of society being able to exercise their right to exist and pursue happiness. And I think that we're starting to have that conversation in both segments of the population. Those are very important and obviously timely reflections. That takes me to the webinar that you and I participated on, and we had a a terrific response with a lot of questions, many of which we did not get to during the scheduled time for the webinar. And I want to go back to one of the questions that was raised, and that had to do with, I know, a topic that is near and dear to you, and that's data collection and research. And one of the questions that was posed by a webinar participant related to erasure of the LGBTQ community within research, and there are many different reasons for that, including how we define different groups, how certain questions are asked, et cetera. And I'm wondering if you have some guidance for us on how researchers can design eligibility criteria and questions so that LGBTQ plus individuals are represented and not erased by the heteronormativity. Absolutely. That's a really important question. Collecting SOGI data, which, you know, that sexual orientation and gender identity information, that is one of the indicators on the Healthcare Quality Index with the Human Rights Campaign. And they also have resources available on the website to support organizations that want to do that type of data collection. For some questionnaires, I use a simple question just as plain as I identify as a gender or sexual minority or a member of the gender or sexual minority community, yes or no. And that's an indicator of whether or not you have members of the LGBTQ community among that population. But there may be times that really call for you getting more granular than that, where you really want to know, is this a sexual or romantic minority member? So a gay individual or a lesbian or a bisexual person, or is this someone who's trans or not? 
non-binary or gender queer. There are all sorts of different wording choices that are preferred among different segments of our population. I think that it depends on what type of research that you're doing, but just know that you can either be incredibly expansive if it's called for based on the research that you're doing. And if you really need to drill down on that information related to either gender or sexual romantic orientation. And then there are also some simple subsets that you can ask. Obviously, there's a lot there to unpack, and I hope and expect that's an area where the field will really develop a lot more of the infrastructure and the definitions and the standardization that we in academic disciplines can all learn from and benefit from for many positive outcomes that could result. Stefan, I'd love to hear your thoughts about one of the questions that came up repeatedly in the webinar series that we did at the Macy Foundation. And that is a question that many faculty wrote into the chat and said things such as, this is a really important area that I care a lot about. However, I don't know the language and I'm so afraid of causing harm or trauma by saying the wrong thing. And what I saw in those comments is that many faculty want to be helpful, they want to be inclusive, but they just don't know where to begin. And I'm wondering if you could help us in identifying a path for how and where to begin so that faculty have a bit more confidence and comfort as they move forward in trying to create these inclusive learning environments that we know are so important. Such a great question. And I know that so many of our faculty are well-intentioned and do want to do the right things. And sometimes we inadvertently say the wrong thing. We misgender someone or we say something that could be offensive to a particular community. And sometimes we do receive backlash. And what we need to understand is that backlash isn't always personally directed. It's really about the lived experience of really having been made to feel as though you are less than your entire life because of, of a particular identity and really fighting against that as you're pursuing your academic degree. So we certainly do see some pushback from students and from members of our learning community when we sometimes do say the wrong thing. I would encourage people as they're beginning, though, to acknowledge, yes, I made a mistake or I said the wrong thing and I'm incredibly sorry. Just acknowledging that you made a mistake is really important. The other thing is acknowledging the fact that you want to learn, that you want to do better. And I would say for faculty members who are at the beginning of their journey with regard to inclusion, certainly you can build upon your knowledge and your skills in that space by having conversations with people with those lived experiences. Now, we don't want to tax people unnecessarily. The minority tax is real. And so you don't want to have people engaged in that work who don't want to do that work. It's not appropriate to just expect that every LGBTQ person or every minority person is going to educate you. You have to do some of your own homework. You need to read, you need to learn in whatever ways are possible and accessible to you. But I will say you will find people who are willing to be a part of your journey as you're learning. I know I certainly have been willing to have conversations with colleagues about the best way to phrase something, the best way to approach an issue. And you're going to find divergent opinions. So for example, some educators really believe in including pronouns, preferred pronouns in every class that they teach and really emphasizing that it's part of creating an inclusive environment. 
There are some trans individuals, if you speak to them, they will say that sometimes that inadvertently causes them to be forced out, if you will, out of the closet. They may not be ready to share their preferred pronouns. They may be in transition. They may not be in a place where that feels comfortable to them. And so it's interesting to see these various perspectives and understand that it is nuanced and not necessarily every solution for every learning community will work for another. So it's a nuanced issue. We need to continually be learning. We need to engage in those courageous conversations. We need to allow ourselves to be vulnerable and recognize that inclusive excellence is truly a lifelong journey. Thank you for that. And I'm so glad you brought up the issue of pronouns because I asked you to focus specifically on faculty who may feel intimidated and not know where to begin. But what about institutions at an institutional level? And let's just use the example that you brought up related to pronouns. I'm aware that some institutions are now issuing ID badges to their staff and health professionals that have their pronouns, the preferred pronouns, right on the ID badge. So is that a helpful thing for institutions to be doing to create the inclusive environments? Or can that have some untoward consequences that should give us pause? I think that it's great and I certainly applaud it. Again, I think that it's not a one size fits all. I think that it's for each institution to really decide what is the best way forward. But that being said, having those pronouns optional on the ID allows for people to know that this is an organization that does understand that gender is not binary, (laughs) that there are other identities. So that is one really positive indicator in making that visible and very pronounced. But I will say that it should be optional. And the reason for that is just what I described before. There may be people who are non-binary who may not feel comfortable with necessarily having a specific label. I know that some people would argue that they should use they, them instead. But I I would say that we really need to understand the members of those communities for whom we're making decisions with the intention of being inclusive. But we really need to understand from their perspective, is this meeting them where they are? Is this meeting their needs? Is it serving them? And that's the only way that we can make sure that we are at least closer to being helpful rather than potentially causing greater harm. I really appreciate your sensitivity on this topic and the real spirit of inclusiveness. We are releasing this podcast on coming out day. And Stefan, I'm wondering if you could say a word about what coming out day is and um, the significance of this day. Yes. So coming out day is a really important day for us in the LGBTQ community. And it's a day to really recognize the process of coming out, which most heterosexual people, most cisgender people never have to do. You never have to sit down and have a conversation about your gender identity or your sexual or romantic orientation. And so this is uh, definitely an important uh, milestone for many LGBTQ people. It is a day that many people also feel should not have to exist, that you should never be forced to have that type of conversation, but this is the world in which we find ourselves in. I will say that for me personally, uh, this day is really important because the first academic seminar or session that I ever went to when I was in high school was actually at SEIU, Edwardsville. Uh, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and Judy Shepard, the mother of Matthew Shepard, who was tragically killed in Wyoming for being gay. And she spoke passionately about this idea that if every 
person who was gay came out of the closet, then what would happen across the nation is that we would all realize that we have a brother or a sister or a colleague who identifies as gay or lesbian. And so for obviously the gay and lesbian and bisexual community, that was really important to have this conversation about coming out of the closet because of what it could do for us nationally. And then expanding that, obviously, to the entire LGBTQ plus community, what does being out, what does being visible mean for us? It means that we have greater access to making change with regard to policy. So, for instance, the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell happened in my lifetime. The Supreme Court decision on marriage equality happened in my lifetime. So I've gone from seeing that situation with Matthew Shepard to seeing really remarkable change for our community. I do not believe that would have been possible without the visibility because of people being out and proud. Now, that being said, I do want to acknowledge the fact that there is a certain amount of privilege that it often takes for people to feel comfortable coming out. And so for LGBTQ people with intersectional identities, For many Black members of the LGBTQ community, for instance, I know many Black gay professionals who are not willing to come out of the closet because they think that it's detrimental to their careers. They feel that they're already managing one marginalized identity in the workplace they don't want to take on two. And I certainly understand that. So I do want to acknowledge that while for many of us in the community, it's such an important and proud day for us each year. But I do want to also take note of the fact that we need to respect people where they are. And if someone doesn't want to come out, again, it's not something that people should have to do anyway, but we know that it is part of the lived experience for many LGBTQ people. What a powerful context. Thank you so much for sharing that background. It really is a very important day, but you made it come alive for us in a way that I think most of us would not otherwise know. So thank you for that, Stefan. And let me conclude by just inviting you to share your thoughts on where we go from here. So what does the future look like and what specific steps are needed to move forward in a positive direction? That's great. No, thank you for for that question. As we look to the future, I think that our work will not be done until we see true representation of LGBTQ people, minorities of all forms, women with equal access to advancement opportunities, leadership opportunities, serving on boards of directors and in governance roles, just the same as their white male cisgender counterparts who have had every economic opportunity. So definitely we should see that sort of equal and equitable advancement opportunity and the opportunity to really thrive in organizations. And we know that's going to be a long journey. And it's something that I hope that we never place the period at the end and say, we're done with this or we've checked the box. It is an active, intentional and ongoing journey. So I'll close with a quote uh, or a definition rather from the American Association of Colleges and Universities on inclusion. And they say that it's the active, intentional and ongoing engagement with diversity that increases one's cognitive sophistication and empathic understanding of the complex ways individuals interact within systems and institutions. And so I know that's a long definition, but what I really love about it is that it talks about this journey with inclusion being ongoing and that we grow in our sophistication over time. So hopefully we'll be having a different type of conversation about these very issues a decade from now or 20 years from now or at the end of my career. So thank you for that question and for having me with you today. 
Well, thank you, Stefan, most of all for allowing me to be on this journey with you because you have taught me so much. And I know that it goes without saying that you have taught our community a lot. So thank you for sharing the journey with all of us. For more on this discussion, I encourage you to watch the webinar featuring Stefan and to read the Macy Conference recommendations and related resources. You can find all of those on the Macy Foundation website at macyfoundation.org. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll share this conversation with others. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so that you will be notified when the next episode drops. And make sure you're signed up to receive email updates from the Macy Foundation.